it really is worth it for, from like a personal sustainability point of view to try to have fun and also have a sense of humor about it if you, if you can. Most people who are gonna make, have, the, have the biggest positive impact, I imagine, they're gonna do it because they have careers over many years, over many decades, where they build expertise, they build networks, they, and it's not sustainable to have a career focused on something like horrible, like the risk of a bioweapons pandemic. If just every day you get up and you're like feeling anxious about it, you're, you're feeling like depressed about how things could go horribly wrong. You should think less about the social impact of your work. <laughs> you need to like, need to chill out a little bit. G'day folks and welcome back to Giving What We Can, where we explore how to use our resources to do the most good. Today, I'm joined by Rob Wiblin from 80,000 Hours, where he's the director of research and also the host of the 80,000 Hours podcast. But before we jump in, I'm joined by my colleague, Grace, who's going to share a few quick reflections on the episode to get you all nice and ready for it. Uh, Grace, what are some of your favourite parts? I think there's a lot of things to enjoy about this interview. You know, obviously, Rob being a podcast host himself, he's got a lot to say and, and uh, very engaging in the way that he speaks. One of my favourite parts of the interview is where he is talking about the very humble beginnings of the Centre for Effective Altruism um, and the fact that he had to be scanned in to uh, work in the university library uh, by someone else because he wasn't a student. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just hope no one from the university hears this this or it's past the uh, statute of limitations. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, one can only hope. But I, I think there are several interesting things in here. I mean, he talks um, quite a bit about like the work of 80,000 hours, how to find a job that's a good fit. One of the things that I really took away was, you know, a lot of the, uh, I guess, like problem profiles that 80,000 hours talks about do seem to be really highly technical fields. Um, and, you know, Rob's advice there was, you know, you don't have to be technical um, to be contributing to some of these issues. There is definitely a space for, you know, great operators, great managers, you know, great people in a variety of roles to contribute to some of these more technical sounding fields. Yeah, I think that this shows it's just a really great path for people from all kinds of backgrounds to find a really high impact career. Even if the thing that they care most about seems like it's going to be quite technical at first, there are all sorts of ways to contribute. Myself not being technical, I was really comforted to hear that, especially sometimes listening to the 80,000 Hours uh, podcast. I think, how could I contribute to some of these issues? But uh, it's nice knowing that there's, uh, there's definitely a way for everyone to have impact. <laughs> Grace, you do this every day in your role. <laughs> Another thing I really liked was the story of the podcast and how it was born out of a bit of laziness. Um, you know, they were doing these pr problem profiles, they're doing these career profiles, and that required a lot of interviewing. Um, and so instead of necessarily focusing on writing up all those notes, we go, okay, let's just release the interview notes and the you know, raw audio to start with. Yeah, I really love the way that I guess the, the format kind of evolved out of this um, need to, to, to get a lot more done. Um, and one of the other things that I really liked that Rob had to say was how he often gives advice to people to think less about the social impact of their work. Yeah. Uh, this isn't something that I think a lot of people are hearing in the effective altruism community, but I think that reminder to have fun um, was something that really resonated with me uh, in this interview. Yeah, along those lines, he was talking about the 80,000 Hours website and, you know, it can be a bit overwhelming seeing this just big list of terrible things um, and you can't necessarily internalise that every day that you're working on it. Something that I feel and, like, generally trying to think about the things that you focus on that really motivate you. So seeing the impact, seeing the wins that are achieved, you know, seeing the good things that are happening as the product of your work and also just having those good work hygiene things like the people around you and the things in your life. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's definitely something I've thought about since listening to this episode. Okay, not to spoil too much, let's kick into the interview. So, yeah, I'm Rob Wiblin. Um, I've been involved in, I guess, the effective altruism and like giving what we can, effective philanthropy scene for uh, since 2012, I guess, when I actually moved to uh, become research director at Giving What We Can all, all, all those years ago when it was so much, so much smaller. Um, these days, I'm at 80,000 Hours. Uh, which is this organization that tries to help people have more impact through their careers, typically. Um, at 80,000 Hours, I host the 80,000 Hours podcast with me, Rob Wiblin, um, uh, where I guess the aim is to do uh, like unusually in-depth interviews with experts who are working on various, solving various different, like really pressing global problems. Uh, so often we talk, talk with them for many hours at a time, trying to find out like, why did they decide to work on this problem? Uh, like why are they working on this particular solution that they're focused on? Like what are the arguments for and against doing what they're doing? Um, yeah, that's the, the, the hope is to go to a level of depth that people find hard to get on other podcasts. Yeah, amazing. Um, it'd be great to start off with uh, just to hear a little bit more about the mission of 80,000 Hours, how it came about and the type of work that you do outside of the podcast as well. Yeah, so I think uh, 80,000 Hours, it kind of was conceived back in 2011 by Will McCaskill and Benjamin Todd, uh, folks as possible listeners will have heard of. I think they were basically, they were, they were coming up on graduating, I think, from their undergrad. Um, and they were like, we want to make the world as good as possible. We want to do the maximum good that we can with our career because they're like kind of consequ- influenced by consequentialist moral philosophy. But they were like, we don't know how to do that. Um, and so they like Google around and they find that just no one is answering this question in that, in that form. Of course, people think about what problems are most pressing in the world, they think about what solutions there are. But in terms of doing comparisons across different problems or comparisons of you know, what methods are best for solving these different problems, trying to estimate what impact you might have if you become a doctor or an engineer or a politician or whatever, it's just like just nothing really out there for them. And they were like, maybe we should do it. <laughs> maybe we should create an organization that tries to figure these things out. I think they spent a couple, spent like a few months looking into this, like doing some basic analysis of you know, how many lives is it plausible that a doctor saves and things like that. And then they gave some talk, I think, at Oxford, they gave a talk to a bunch of undergrads, uh, and I think out of that, like three people completely changed their careers. I think there was only twenty people who went along to their <laughs> workshop, and like three people like upended their lives. And they're like, okay, this is a good sign. We should we should create an organization that does this sort of research in in some like proper detail, not just a few months of some undergrads in their spare time looking around. Um, and yeah, things have gone from there. We've now got a staff that's like low 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 twenties. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got various different programs. We've got the podcast uh, that uh, me and my colleague Kieran Harris work on. Uh, we've got a one-on-one kind of advising program. So people can apply on our website to speak to someone at 80,000 hours about what they're planning to do and whether it's the right thing for them and uh, like how they might uh, find either you know, a better path to get on or improve the one that they're on. Uh, we've got the website, which has tons of research on it now, uh, you know, analysis of different problems that people might choose to work on, different approaches that they might take to solving it, different uh, like an aptitudes that they might try to develop. Uh, all of that sort of thing. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, and then on the website, there's also the job board, uh, which lists now about um, a thousand uh, roles. It's not super vetted, but it's uh, you know a thousand uh, jobs that are like in the areas that we think are important and like plausibly people should think about taking if they're uh, considering uh, considering changing role. Yeah, well, we've had people come through that job board as well. So that's that's very helpful. <laughs> it's, it's working. It's working. <laughs> Yeah, so 80,000 Hours has tried to break apart some of the ways that people actually think about looking at a career. What are the most important factors that you recommend people think about when trying to have a positive impact? Obviously, when you're like trying to make career decisions, figure out what to do with your career, there's like 
lots of different things that you want to take into consideration. It's like, you know, is this, is this the right organization for you culturally? Uh, you know, what, what kind of particular skills do you have? Like lots of personal uh, fit considerations, uh, lots of questions about uh, what is the nature of different kinds of jobs uh, in particular. Um, maybe one of the things that's like a bit weird about 80,000 hours and like is distinctive for us, like relative to uh, like careers advice that people might typically get elsewhere, say at the like university, uh, careers advice office is that we we say, have a lot to say about like what does the world need what are the most pressing problems in the world uh, and that is basically because well firstly other people don't talk about it so there's a there's a niche there to say something that's not getting said uh, but also we think like deciding which problem you're going to try to contribute to solving is maybe the most important decision that you make in terms of what impact are you ultimately going to have on the world and that's because there's just vast differences in the scale, the neglectedness and the tractability of different issues. There's some issues that get a lot of attention, despite the fact that the number of people affected is not so large. Yeah. There's other issues that where like enormous number of humans or animals are affected. And for some reason, just no one is no one is working on them whatsoever. And it's like not obvious that that's explained by them not being possible to solve or anything like that. So we suspect that yeah, working on some problems rather than others, it could increase your impact like 10, 100, 100x, maybe even more than that, uh, depending on what you were thinking of doing otherwise. So yeah, we put quite a lot of effort into this problem selection uh, stage. And that's why we have a lot to say about uh, what, what's going wrong in the world um, on, on the website. Yeah, that also touches on what the main topics of your podcast are. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, exactly. So Another thing that's maybe distinctive about what people will hear on on the 80,000 Hours podcast as opposed to other shows is we, we do usually, with most episodes, approach things from a long-termist perspective. Mm -hmm. I guess some people will have heard of long-termism, some people won't. It, it's basically the idea that uh, when, you're, when you're trying to figure out how to make the world a better place, one of the key considerations is thinking about what are the very long-term effects of your actions. So not just the effect on you know, people in the next year or, or 10 years or the current generation, but thinking about how might the effects of your actions ripple out throughout history, uh, which maybe, maybe sounds a little bit grandiose, but uh, I think the case that we can influence the well-being or the existence of future generations is, is surprisingly strong. And of course, because the future could just be so enormous, uh, you know, the, the typical species, uh, I think, uh, you know, has been around for about a million years. Uh, humans have been around for about 200,000 years. It's all of this is a bit squishy, but if, if, if humans just survive for like as long as a typical mammalian species, you know, we're only 20% through. There's going to be like a vast future ahead of us uh, where like many billions, possibly trillions of people will, will get a chance to live. Um, and there's things that we do now that could really affect all of those future generations. For example, <laughs> we could drive ourselves extinct through our own stupidity, yeah. um, uh, like a shockingly plausible possibility, and that would then preclude all of those people from ever existing. Yeah. Uh, so that, yeah. Can you give some examples of that? Oh, ways that we could, ways yeah. that we could go? Oh, uh, too many. Uh, no, yeah, I guess, so nuclear, nuclear war is kind of a classic yeah. one. Uh, maybe it was like the first way that we had a chance to really do ourselves in through our own, uh, <laughs> through our own idiocy or our own conflict. Um, actually, if you look at that one really closely, it's not clear that even if we had a massive nuclear war that humanity would go extinct. Obviously, it would be the worst thing that ever happened. Mm probably we would have a decent shot at uh, recovering. And actually we have some episodes on exactly this question of, well, firstly, like would humanity recover from a nuclear war? Uh, and if so, how could we speed it up? Um, because I guess sadly, as people have been able to see this year with the war in Ukraine and the tensions between the US and Russia, the US and China, like the threat of nuclear weapons is very much still with us. Then I guess another one that <laughs> people thought we were a little bit funny when we talked about it five or 10 years ago, but now we definitely don't get that reaction anymore is the risk of, from pandemics. Basically, like so COVID-19 was pretty, pretty bad, massively disruptive, but it only killed like 1% or so of the people who got it. 
The Black Death was a pandemic uh, in the 13th, 14th centuries. It killed like about half of people in Europe. Uh, almost everyone got it and half of society was, was killed. And there's actually, there's no reason why you couldn't have a far more deadly disease. Um, there, are, there are some limiting factors, but you could plausibly have a natural pandemic that arises at some point that kills 90% of people who have it. And then, you know, you're killing off 90% of the human population quite suddenly. Probably will recover, but it's like not completely obvious uh, that, that that we would. It's possible that things could be that we could get like stuck in a in a permanently curtailed state, and like humanity never really reaches its potential or never never flourishes in the way that it might have without such a pandemic. Uh, so yeah, pandemics is another issue. I mean, maybe even worse than the natural pandemic scenario is the possibility of bioweapons. So there are forces that evolutionary pressures that push the development like natural diseases to not kill ninety percent of people because it. At that level of fatality, it tends to curtail their spread somewhat. If someone's in a lab trying to design the most dangerous pathogen that they can, and our technology for that is just getting better and better as, as the years go on, uh, they can make it as like fatal as they like. They can also make it uh, have as long a latency period as they as they potentially like if they're sufficiently skilled. So you could have a disease that kills most almost everyone in the end, but they're infectious with it for a very long period of time before uh, beforehand. So it gets a fantastic opportunity to spread. So bioweapons, that, that threat, I think, People first started really worrying about that in the 1920s, mm. um, and there have been very large bioweapons programs, uh, particularly in the, the in the Soviet Union. They had like tens of thousands of scientists, I think, working on uh, both offensive and defensive bioweapons issues. The big worry that people have with bioweapons today is that the technology for genetically engineering diseases uh, to make them have properties that we that the person involved wants is just getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Um, and they're getting accessible to more and more people, such that, you know, a really committed group of graduate students in biology departments, um, if if no one was interfering with them and they were committed to making a really dangerous pathogen that was far, far, far worse than COVID, they'd, they'd have a good shot. They'd have a good shot. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're North Korea, you definitely have, you probably could already have done this if you were interested. So that's another way that we could uh, really do ourselves, like either do ourselves massive damage or possibly even cause our own extinction. Yeah, so you've given a couple of examples of some pretty big risks. Uh, can you also help uh, our listeners understand the difference between catastrophic risks and existential mm -hmm. risks? Yes. So I guess existential risks, uh, that's the notion of some event, something that would go wrong that would permanently prevent humanity from reaching its potential. One obvious way for that to happen is that we are all gone. There's no more, no more people. Uh, I guess possibly, possibly things could flourish again in future if like another, another smart species evolves on Earth, but it uh, doesn't seem super likely in the time that, that Earth has left. So that's a pretty, pretty bad outcome if you think the future could be really good. Global catastrophic risks include just like things going, uh, like us really going, going off the rails, but it doesn't necessarily have to be permanent. So, you know, a meteor that like is super disruptive or a great power war that, you know, uh, is like as bad as World War II today, you might say that's like a, a global catastrophic risk. It might curtail us permanently, but it need not necessarily do so. Various different reasons that you might want to work on either of these issues. With existential risks, uh, of course, the fact that the effects are so long-lasting, so persistent, like indeed they last forever, is a particularly crucial consideration and gives it particular oomph. I think in terms of working on global catastrophic risks, uh, a reason that many people do that is just that they think we are massively underestimating the, the risk of this, these kinds of things happening. On a day-to-day -day basis, we don't really want to be thinking about the fact that if the US and China went to war, it would just catastrophically upend our lives. Yeah. Or that, 
you know, it's only by sheer luck that we're not having uh, a, a, like a COVID 2.0 that happens to kill 10 times as many people. And just like, again, our lives are upended. 10 years ago, we used to say, you know, the world is a way riskier place than you appreciate. Things can, things can happen that, you, that are like out of, out of the sample that you're familiar with. We've got a lot of skepticism. We get a bit less of that now because the last five years, it's not only COVID, like things have gotten a bit wild in a bunch of different ways. And I think if you want to see how dangerous a place the world can be, it is worth studying a bit of history, like looking not just at the 90s, uh, like the time that I guess many listeners <laughs> might have grown up in the time that I grew up, which was like a relatively placid time. Yeah. But uh, history is full of surprises and we are still living through it. Uh, there's, there's, there's good reasons to want to try to uh, see ways that things could go wrong and prevent them beforehand. Which actually takes us to what are the ways that people can actually address some of these issues because mm -hmm. people can be pretty uh, you know, immobilized by it just seeming so big. Yes. So this is a reason that I think many people don't like to think about these issues and sometimes can be a bit resistant to the idea that this ought to like guide their decisions, guide their career, their career choices of all things, something that's so concrete. I think there's just actually plenty of things that we can do to deal with these issues. Maybe it's actually clearest in the, in the pandemic case. So people will now know about the mRNA vaccines, right? It's like a platform for developing vaccines that is pretty broad, broad spectrum. You can potentially uh, come up with vaccines like within weeks or months of a new pathogen being, being, being identified and then just kind of change the code in the manufacturing process. Um, and then so, so you like vaccinate the world much, much faster than you might have been able to without this mRNA vaccine technology. There were people working on this for decades before and they knew that this would have the benefit that if, if they could get the mRNA vaccine technology working, we would be in a much better position to deal with all future novel pandemics. This was funded by people who were worried about the risk from, new, from novel pathogens on the basis both of existential risk and of global catastrophic risks. It's a great example uh, of like an existence proof of something that was done for this reason. It did work, it is helping us today and it would help us in, in future. And there's quite a lot of other technologies in the same ilk that, that we could continue developing that are, they don't create many new risks yeah. because of course like <laughs> technological advances can be a double-edged sword, uh, but they do seem to really uh, protect us against, uh, against risks. So an example of something that people could either fund or get involved in the research of now is broad spectrum antiviral drugs. Mm -hmm. So uh, people again have been working on, so, so, so viruses obviously they're fairly diverse, but they do have like some common things that they kind of need to do, uh, like replicating their, their RNA for example. And often you'll have like broad uh, families of viruses that we might be scared of that um, could all be attacked at some common core element that they have. If we come up with uh, an antiviral drug that doesn't just attack like one specific virus, but attacks all viruses or, or like it inhibits the growth of like at least one family of viruses, that protects us against, or like provides a substantial protection against like any new pandemics that might, might arise in that, in that family of viruses. That's like another case we, um, historically we've often, we've developed kind of vaccines and drugs that are very particular. What we want to do ideally is develop platforms that allow us to not just tackle the diseases that we already have, but all of the ones that might arise uh, in, in future. And there's, yeah, so we've got antivirals. There's also people working on broad spectrum vaccines. So people will be familiar with the fact that Almost every year you might go and get a flu vaccine because the flu is constantly evolving. People again have been working for many years to try to come up with a vaccine that doesn't just protect you against the flu strains that happen to be circulating right now, but would protect you against like future evolutions of flu. Um, I'm less up on the technical details of how that works, but you know, many people think that it's quite plausible that if we threw the talent and money at this problem, we could actually do that. And then that would, again, put us in a much better position to protect ourselves against like any natural flu pandemics that arose in future, or indeed like someone who tried to turn the flu into something much more dangerous uh, from a bioweapon point of view. 
with these types of examples, I imagine that a lot of people might get the idea that they need to be a scientist or an engineer to have an impact with their career. Um, can you talk about some of the ways that people might be working on these types of problems and others uh, yeah. from a diverse range of backgrounds? Absolutely, yeah. So um, science and tech is, not, is a natural way to approach these, but absolutely not, not the only one. I mean, to begin with, anyone who went into any kind of like funding position or position in government where they potentially are involved in analyzing what risks a country might face, ways that things could go wrong, like what stuff could we do to, to forestall it? Uh, like people who might perhaps have an economics background like me are in a very good position to work in think tanks or in government roles to like trying to raise the alarm about these problems and then analyze like what, what things should the government be funding to, to see them off. Um, that's a whole class of roles. Like any organization that is trying to tackle these issues in basically any way is going to need also great management expertise, people to work on operations, budgeting, like fundraising, organization, all of these different positions. Indeed, I think if you look at almost any organization that's working on even very wacky, like global catastrophic risks or existential risk issues, you know, half of the people have like, don't have a technical background. They're there because they're like brilliant managers. Uh, they know how to coordinate people. Uh, they know how to deal with other organizations and get things done. Um, so j even just from that point of view, if you're like someone who, you know, didn't go and study uh, <laughs> some topic related to, to bioweapons at university, there's still like tons of roles uh, that, are, that, that, that are relevant. Yeah. Some other great resources that uh, people might not be aware of is the problem areas and the career profiles. Can you share what they are? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean there's lots of different ways that you could, lots of different uh, orders that you could take when you're trying to plan a career. Like, obviously, you want to match with, like, skills and with the problem and with, like, your personal fit with an organization, all of these different things. But, yeah, in, in order to help with that, we've got um, two, two sections of the website. Uh, the problem profiles, where we, like, consider lots of different problems that people put forward as like maybe especially useful to work on. You know, it's like risks from new technologies, including artificial intelligence, the, the pandemics, as I've been talking about, you know, climate change, uh, I guess like also, you know, animal welfare, uh, global health and development and so on. And then we try to put like a whole bunch of stuff on that page that people will find useful, like analyzing what's the scale, what's the neglectedness, how, how easy to solve is this problem, what different approaches might one take, uh, what experts have to say about this this issue, like what other resources should you go to if this seems like a path that you're interested in. So that's that's the problem profiles. Then of course we've got career reviews, which is focused more more on the like aptitude or career path aspect. So uh, there, there we've got things on like, what about becoming an academic? What about uh, going into going and working at a think tank? Um, what about going and uh, becoming a like medical expert? These different things. And there, obviously, you talk about like how hard is it to get into these roles? Like what are the pros and cons of having that kind of job? What sort of person might be a good fit? Um, and ideally, by having these, uh, I guess you can imagine, ideally, you want to have a Rolodex. So you're like, okay, we've matched the person with the right problem, with the right solution to it. That is then like pushing on like whatever is most, uh, most lacking in, among people who are trying to, to solve that problem. So can you tell us a little bit more about the story kind of that led you to now host the 80,000 Hours podcast, the director of research there? Um, you've been involved in the effective altruism movement for quite a long time. Uh, how did that all happen? What, what's the story? Yeah, I was a bit of a weird kid. I was like super concerned about philosophy when I was a teenager. I think like around 10 or 11. Yeah, I started encountering these things like, what is the meaning of words? Like I, the problem of induction really troubled me. Um, I was very like philosophically inclined. And then of course you very quickly run into all these like ethical dilemmas. Uh, so I was like, yeah, I guess I probably like learned about the trolley problem when I was 11. I was probably like really uh, taken, taken by this. And so I started reading uh, different moral philosophers who had different takes on like what is valuable, uh, like what actions are we take. And like many Australians, uh, I like encountered Peter Singer. Uh, he's like, I guess pretty, he's famous globally. He's especially famous in, in Australia uh, back at that time. And I started reading his like various essays where he tries to resolve or tries to 
answer these like various challenging like ethical questions and I was just I just thought it was broadly the right approach it's like yeah the thing that really does matter is like what impact does this actually have on on people in the world like is this causing suffering or is this causing people to flourish so I got very interested in utilitarian ethics of various different kinds you know at that time I wasn't especially committed to any any particular flavor but I liked the, the focus on on consequences which I guess ultimately led me to probably to switch into economics because it felt like the field that was most interested in these kinds of trade-offs between like different different good consequences that you that you might get from actions and is like very happy to grapple with uh, the, the difficult cases of you know you're giving up like something that you value in order to get to get something else. It led me, I guess, to network online. I think, like, I think none of effective altruism really could have existed without the internet because Ooh. you needed to get a clustering of weirdos, <laughs> a clustering of people with like peculiar, <laughs> exactly, exactly, in order to get momentum, in order to like g one another on to to not just be intimidated by the fact that most of our families uh, disagreed. So yeah, I did a bunch of uh, you know, networking online on social media, on like various forums to find other people who also thought that it's not just good enough to not violate moral prohibitions, like okay, sure, you shouldn't steal, but like surely there's got to be more to ethics than this. <laughs> surely, surely we also got to think about like what good stuff could we create. And so, uh, yeah, r- relatively early on when the Center for Effective Altruism and Giving What We Can were getting set up in, in Oxford, uh, a whole bunch of people <laughs> on the internet like forwarded the job advert for the head of research role <laughs> to me. They're like, this is the thing that you like won't shut up about. <laughs> you should go and take this job. Uh, maybe go and like hassle these people rather than, rather than talk to us about doing the most good. Then in terms of the, the, the podcast, so I've had like various different iterations of my role uh, over, over the years. Yeah, the, the origin story of the podcast is like significantly predicated on, I guess, my laziness. We'd spent many, many years trying to write these exact articles that I'm talking about, uh, you know, analysis of problems, analysis of like different career paths that you can go down. A challenge of writing like a definitive like page, like here's our page on the data on data science careers, is that people hold you to a really high standard for that. They're like, if there's anything wrong in it, then you, they'll give you a really hard time because you've made it like an encyclopedia. We just had lots and lots of ideas that we had never published anywhere, and I was like, Can't, surely there's got to be an easier way than this than slogging through these like very difficult articles trying to make sure that there's nothing nothing wrong in them. And of course, to write these articles, I was speaking to lots of experts in in the exact area. In order to write the data science profile, we talked to data scientists, uh, and so we would do that. And then we would take notes and then we'll try to turn it into an article. And I was like, maybe we just cut out the middleman here. Can't we, can't we just publish the interviews, um, which is exactly what we started, uh, started doing. And just very quickly, it became evident that <laughs> doing good interviews is like, is a lot easier than writing articles in terms of the, like how much information can you get out into the world uh, with an hour of, with an hour of work. Mm-hmm. And also there's, there is just a huge audience that much prefers listening to audio than, uh, than reading long articles. Uh, I'm like a real audio person myself of, uh, it comes again from a dark, I suppose, yes, yeah, so it's, it's predicated on laziness. I guess also for me, audio, my love for audio was based on a lack of discipline and a lack of attention. I think like many office workers, when I'm at my computer, I'm very prone to being distracted. So you bring up a very long article about like all of the ins and outs of data science and you find yourself after a while on another tab <laughs> where uh, perhaps you're not learning quite as useful information. Um, but it's like a lot easier for me to focus when I'm listening to uh, like an, some expert talk about a topic while I'm out on a walk or when I'm like at the gym or cleaning up the house. Uh, the other tabs are not as easy to, to access. Yeah. <laughs> So you headed over to the UK uh, when the Centre for Effective Altruism was founded. Can you tell us about that, the early days as you just kind of sift through all these different problems? You've got this big question of, you know, how can we do the most good? Uh, What was that like? 
Every startup is writing massive checks in the hope that one day it will be able to cash them. And I feel like that was a little bit effective altruism in the early days was this like grand ambitious vision for we're going to investigate all of these different problems, look at all of these different charities, uh, tr try to figure out how people can have the most impact. But obviously we're like a dozen people <laughs> who've like been at this for a year or two. In reality, the, the amount of like depth of the research was, ex it was extremely scant. <laughs> um, but we're hoping that we can get build enough momentum that over time more people will get involved and then eventually we can like look into these things properly and uh, start making fewer embarrassing errors. Mm. Um, so yeah, anyway, back at back in 2012, um, I think I was like one of the third, fourth, fifth hire at the, at the Center for Effective Altruism. Um, back then, it was like mostly, I guess, undergrads, a couple of uh, you know old hands, like in early in their postgraduate degrees. Um, there was almost no funding, I guess. I, I think they managed to hire me because uh, they got like a grant for like twenty thousand pounds or something like that in order to to to, to, to pay my salary, and that was considered a, a great success at the time. Um, we didn't have an office. Uh, people were just kind of working out of some like university library. I wasn't a student, so I had to get someone else to swipe me in. <laughs> this is, that's the kind of like level of amateurishness that we're talking about. Um, I mean, nonetheless, I think it was it's quite interesting how uh, how much good stuff came out of that like early time. It's people know about the the, the idea of like declining returns. Mm. Of course, you do get a lot of value out of looking at things really closely. But even just the first cut that I think it's like Toby Ord and Wilma Castlewood did, where they're like. Uh, you know, what are the what are diseases that are causing a massive disease burden based on research that's already been done relative to how much it costs to, to cure each person? It very quickly turned up deworming. Yeah. As it turned out, uh, most many of the calculations are wrong and like kind of the reasons why they prioritized it weren't quite right. However, it is probably nonetheless like one of the most cost effective things within within global health all the same. Sometimes just the first cut, even though it's like extremely imprecise, does highlight stuff that 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 stands out. Over time, we've been able to consider like a wider and wider range of problems and also like different ways that particular issues might stand out. So early on in the history of giving what we can, as many people will know, uh, you know, Toby Ordon or McCaskill, they're doing this in their spare time. And they're like, well, it seems like one cluster of problems that stands out as potentially really useful to solve and very cost effective to solve is like finding the world's like poorest people and then seeing like what problems do they have that might be fixed uh, really quickly. And that like pretty quickly turns you onto like these, these really cheap like global health interventions, like diseases that are so easily preventable that it's kind of astonishing that they're, that they're still around. Philosophy is a huge area. Moral philosophy is a, is a, is a, is a huge topic and there's lots of different uh, like diversion points where you could end up uh, having different ideas about what might matter. So very quickly people uh, like, are thinking, but wait, Peter Singer has these like really strong arguments that uh, animals, is, uh, animals are super important, that there's, there's tons of them. We often treat them egregiously uh, poorly. And we think that they are probably conscious as well and they, they can suffer uh, just like us. And also almost no one's talking about this, or I suppose some people are talking about it, but it's pretty small in the scheme of things. So maybe uh, we should also do some investigation of what can be done to help out uh, animals who are being treated poorly in animal agriculture. And so that becomes a whole like flourishing topic as effective altruism uh, starts to grow and more people take an interest in these ideas. Then people also, <laughs> a natural progression is also thinking, uh, maybe we we're like, okay, so where, where are all of the like beings that we could affect? Okay, so we've talked about like humans, uh, we've, uh, we've talked about humans outside of our country. So we're thinking about like looking globally, we're thinking about now other species. Uh, another natural progression is like, what about the future? What about people who don't exist right now, who can't uh, complain to us about their, about their problems? And so you get this uh, increasing focus on like, 
we don't only want to have effects on the current day. We ideally would like to have really persistent effects. Um, and then people think, well, you know, how large might those, those effects be? And they quickly realize, wait, the future is like, could be very, very long. Uh, <laughs> the heat death of the universe isn't coming anytime soon. The earth is going to be habitable for at least another half a billion years. So, you know, you know before we even get to that, I suppose, even if we just manage to go for another million years, the, the, the future seems enormously large in the number of people who, who you could affect. So you get, yeah, more and more people thinking, well, uh, what things could we do now that might, that aren't going to wash out or merely like speed up something that's inevitable, but might like put us, put humanity on a different trajectory in the long term, like get it to a better place forever, uh, rather than just like getting it there a little bit faster. So that kind of uh, creates this new uh, cottage industry of, of long-termism and existential risk and people thinking about all of those topics. So it has been really nice to to see uh, effective altruism as a like as a community like blossom in like all kinds of different directions, and people will have like lots of different ideas. Um, you might like it's actually one thing that's like, quite odd about effective altruism is it's a social movement, an intellectual movement, a social scene as well. I guess that is not united around like common conclusions on what <laughs> is good. It's united around a methodology and I guess some common principles like. You know, we should care about like all beings, not just ourselves, or at least we should care about more beings than we might be inclined to otherwise. So tons of different conclusions then about like what the priorities actually ought to be. Um, you might think that, that would lead to tons of conflict, but it hasn't. Um, people seem to get along remarkably well. I suppose, you know, over the years, people have had their, uh, their terse words with one another, but um, we have just attracted people who are like pretty open-minded, like really intellectually curious. They don't get angry when people disagree with them about like where they ought to be giving their money. Uh, the people are mostly curious to like learn from one another and understand the, the different, uh, the ideas that are kind of happening in some other, other cluster of the, of, of the community. Uh, so it's like, it's, it's pretty beautiful in that way. Are there criticisms uh, of the movement or the methodology or the conclusions as they stand today that you'd like to see developed more? Mm, that's interesting. I mean, Maybe the philosophical objection that I'm most troubled by is, is like, actually, I mean, people in, within effective altruism have explored it maybe more than, more than uh, anyone else because it troubles us so much. But it's this issue that if you really do think that what matters morally is the consequences of your actions over the very long term, it's a pretty strong case that this is hard to tell what it is. Mm. And indeed that like very small differences in your actions could end up having like radically different consequences because the world is just so unpredictable. So in moral philosophy, this is called the problem of cluelessness. Um, I think if I were ever to kind of despair of the ability to make the world a better place, I think it would kind of be on that basis that maybe our, the effects of our actions in, to in totality are so unforeseeable that we really can't tell uh, that one thing is better than, than another. Uh, philosophers are working on this. I guess <laughs> practical people are also working on this and it doesn't affect me on a like day-to-day -day basis, but I think it is definitely uh, a challenge that one could raise to <laughs> do our attempts at least to like uh, try to improve things in the very long term. Maybe a more practical issue. So many people like read our, read our website uh, they might land on it because they're you know, at an inflection point in their life or they're thinking, you know, I would like to do something with my life that's quite meaningful. And it can be overwhelming a little bit to read. Like, obviously, we've got a list of problems that we think are super important. It's basically just a list of, like, the worst things. <laughs> well, the worst things about the world as it is now and the ways that things could go most horribly wrong. And it's very natural then to go from that to thinking, wow, the world is so messed up the, the most important thing, the overwhelmingly important thing that I ought to be thinking about at all times is how I can fix these problems because the world just has like so much need for, <laughs> for people uh, to fix it. We, we live in a world that is kind of an ongoing catastrophe in a sense. 
totally understandable. I think this is no way for most people to live on a, on a practical, uh, on a practical basis. So I, like every every week or two, I'm trying to produce a new uh, a new episode of the Eighty Thousand Hours podcast where we talk about some new horrific thing or some new like unsolved philosophical conundrum like cluelessness. You might think that that would make me pretty morbid or like an unhappy person because like all that I'm thinking about is ways that things could go horribly wrong. I think it it really is worth it for, from like a personal sustainability point of view to try to have fun, like ha do like lots of things that are not worrying about uh, how, how the world is terrible and also have a sense of humor about it if you, if you can, because ultimately most people who are going to make have the, have the biggest positive impact, I imagine they're going to do it because they have careers over many years, over many decades where they build expertise, they build networks, they, um, they, they, they figure out like what things can actually be done in these areas. And it's not sustainable to have a career focused on something like horrible, like the risk of a bioweapons pandemic. Uh, if just every day you get up and you're like feeling anxious about it, you're, you're feeling like depressed about how things could go horribly wrong. You have to find a way to either laugh or at least like put it, put these issues out of mind a lot of the time and, and also have like other things in your, in your life that uh, keep you fulfilled uh, and like might be ways in which you can flourish, even if your work isn't going so great. Yeah. Uh, so Oddly enough, like often I find myself, like I think in the early days we were telling people, you should think more about the social impact of your work. Now a lot of people come to us and I'm like, you should think less about the social impact of your work. <laughs> you need to like, need to chill out a little bit uh, yeah. because it's just, this is, this is, human beings have needs that are like more than just uh, thinking about like the long-term consequences of all of their actions. There definitely is a tendency uh, within the effective altruism community that we always want to be better. We always want to be a bit perfectionist about things. Uh, it's natural to be like, to always be looking for ways that your organization can do better and also ways that other people can be doing better. But I do think that this causes people to not appreciate like how well things are going in the, in, in the big picture. It's maybe a little bit easier for me to see this because I've been around for so long that I can just see how radically different things are now and how there's, there's lots of things that people take for granted now that we launched 10 years ago and we're like, we had no idea whether this was going to work. Like it was every chance that the thing would completely collapse or people would end up hating us for saying X or Y, but actually things go fine. Like lots of things that we worried would go wrong, don't go wrong. Lots of projects that might have failed are actually now flourishing. I think, for example, people might know about charity entrepreneurship, yeah. this organization. I feel like you should go and like start a successful charity before you start incubating other charities. It's a reasonable argument. Nonetheless, they went away and did it and they've like killed it. They're like, yeah. create, they're helping to foster all of these new organizations um, that are, you know, racking up some real wins. Um, that's a, that's an amazing story of people managing to go out and do something where it seems like maybe they're not quite qualified yet and yet they nail it. And uh, we should appreciate that and also be aware that that indicates that other people in the future might be able to pull off this, pull off this fantastic story as well. So I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm both always worried about the way the world can go and also optimistic about our, our potential to, uh, to make a dent on these problems. Yeah, well, this has been a fantastic uh, conversation. So much going on. Uh, yeah, a lot that people can actually do to contribute. Any final thoughts you'd like to leave people with? Hmm. Well, okay, here's, here's one other success that particularly affects you. I, there's a slide in my, in my talk in a, in a couple of hours uh, where I look at uh, giving what we can and, how, and the membership growth and the different like uh, trends over time. It looks like... So, so obviously, given what we can was on this, it was like kind of parked for a little while yeah. while the Center for Effective Altruism was focusing on other priorities. And then it's like now it's been like picked up again and taken very seriously. It seems like if you look at the change in the trajectory, yeah. there's about like 1,500 more members uh, as a result probably of your work, given the, given the break from the trend when before you got involved. That's like amazing. 
amazing. That's as many members as give what we can got in its first like five or six years, I think. Um, yeah, we, we should we should we should appreciate all of those people who've joined, and also appreciate that uh, you guys are you guys are doing a great job. Yeah, it's been really wonderful seeing so many people join the community who just really care about others and what they can do to help. So yeah. thanks for all your work leading up to that, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and all the work you continue to do at Eight Thousand Hours. Yeah, I'm glad we didn't manage to uh, absolutely ruin the project and destroy its yeah. long-term potential back and back when I was involved. Yeah, cheers. Thanks. Thanks.